um, my name's Lindsay Smallwood. I'm a partner here at the River, and um, part of the reason I'm used to asking people to say good morning to me is I teach middle school during the week, um, and uh, so a little bit about me. When my husband and I first got married, I was teaching special ed in Oakland, public school, and he was a grad student at Berkeley, so we were not bringing in the big bucks. We lived in a 400 square foot rental unit in West Berkeley, and it's actually not a bad spot to be when you're newlyweds because you really have to work it all out because there's nowhere to go. And we were just always kind of right next to each other. And then we had a baby, and then we had another baby, and we were still that little, it wasn't this big, but it was a little, just a little spot, and, um, and we were cozy. But uh, Chris graduated and uh, got a great job. He uh, had an offer to do a fellowship in the kind of physics research that was really interesting to him. And so, and I was in Boulder, Colorado. And I was excited because uh, moving out of the Bay and Chris finally having a job and an income meant that we might finally be able to buy a house. I had this dream in my head of, you know, a tree-lined street, maybe on a cul-de-sac and a backyard. And, uh, you know, this whole picture. So we went out on this house hunting trip and we found a place that we love, a little fixer-upper, so cute, with a basement that we could remodel for my parents could stay. And then after we put uh, our initial offer in, we got a call from the guy who ran the research lab that Chris was meant to work at, that he had accepted an offer to move that lab from Boulder to Ann Arbor, Michigan in 18 months time. And uh, we kind of looked at each other, and it was just like everything that had been certain about the future went, and suddenly we were thousands of miles from home, and we didn't have anywhere to live, and we didn't know what Chris's job was going to look like, and uh, we were surprised. Chris uh, did some digging and found out that we actually qualified for university housing, and so uh, we got an offer to live in the dorms. And uh, again, I have to tell you that um, for, for me, this is not what I had pictured. In fact, I want to tell you that uh, sort of the deal, and I don't know that we ever called it this, but it felt like a deal, like I'll follow you around the country to whatever job that it is you're going to work, and in return, my part of the deal is I'm going to get a cute little house to stay at home and raise my babies. And uh, so this was not the deal. The dorms were not the deal. The dorms were orange doors and concrete walls and 40-year-old linoleum floors and neighbors on every side and lots of smells. And I was not into it. And there was this voice in my head. It's a good voice. I hope you have this voice. And that voice said, um, you should be thankful. God has provided for you. You have more than most people in the world have, and don't you forget it. And everything's going to be okay. I had that voice. But there was this other voice, too, and that was the voice that said that I deserved that house on a tree-lined street, that somehow I was owed it. And I want to tell you this morning that it's a spiritually dangerous place to live as if you're owed something. In today's passage from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks to this part of all of us. And I'm not accusing any of you of having a suburban cul-de-sac dream. I imagine that if we stopped and talked about the deepest longings of our hearts and the things that we wish for in the world, that in a room like this, the answers to that question would be quite different. But all of us are carrying hungers. 
all of us carry desire for security, for comfort, for home, for some vision of the good life, whatever that means to you. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus addresses those longings, and he points out how when our desires are wrongly ordered, our lives risk disappointment and dissatisfaction and ruin. But he also points us to a new order, a new posture for living in the world, a new way of orienting our longings toward the things that Jesus loves. But before he does that, he talks about fasting. Whenever you fast, he says, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. When you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face, so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. If you are here last week, Grace talked about Jesus' previous teachings on prayer, And one of the things that she pulled out of the text for us that's very helpful is that a lot of what Jesus was saying about prayer was to be sure that you're not doing the right thing for the wrong reason. And Jesus is continuing that thread here, reminding us that fasting is an important practice, the laying aside of our physical hunger in order that we might develop a spiritual hunger. It's supposed to be about building our capacity to know and understand God. But the goal always has to be private communion with God and not public virtue signaling. And it's after this teaching on fasting that Jesus goes on to talk about the things that we treasure. Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, There your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. When I was growing up and I heard this passage read and taught, I usually equated that phrase treasure in heaven with something akin to delayed gratification, that it was okay if in this life I don't get uh, a fancy house and lots of money and the chance to go on good vacations and beautiful jewelry or whatever, because If I follow Jesus and I do all the things that Christians are supposed to do in the afterlife, I would get like a blinged out McMansion estate, right? (laughs) Or or some version of uh, that every time I do a good deed, I somehow it was building up a pile for me and there would be actual jewels in an actual crown that I would wear in an actual castle in the sky where I would live. And that was sort of my idea about what treasure in heaven meant, that if I, it's okay if you don't have it now, because Christians are going to get it someday. And the longer that I've studied Jesus, and the longer that I've listened to his words, and the more that I've walked with him, the less likely that interpretation of treasure in heaven seems to me. My grandmother, Grams, we called her, was an unextraordinary person by most measures. She was a cardiac nurse, 
and a wife and a mother. She was a Cub Scout den leader, and she played cards in a canasta club. Uh, but the thing that was interesting about Grams is that she loved life. She was just lit up from the inside about all kinds of things. She would sit in her backyard, she had a porch swing, and she would sit in the back and wait for the bluebirds to come and then just smile and point to them. She loved it when the snow would fall and she could see the way that it changed the look on the mountains and she'd write about that in notes. And uh, she was always really impressed by the goodness that she saw in other people in ways that were like really unusual to me. I mean, we would go somewhere. I have vivid memories of going places with her and having things happen like somebody would hold the door open for us and she would thank them profusely and we walked through and she would touch me on the arm and say, Lance, how kind of him. Can you believe he stopped what he was doing to open the door for us? What a wonderful young man. And I was always kind of like, yeah, okay, yeah, I mean, that's nice. So, but, but it, to her, it, it lit her up inside to see the ways that people were kind to each other. And it wasn't just about the goodness that she saw in the world. She also brought goodness in, in many different ways. She was always generous to me, slipping me money when I would leave her house, having her, my favorite things on hand when I'd go visit. When I went through a hard season after college, she was praying for me, and then she sent me a letter and invited me to come live with her. She said, let me take care of you for a while, so I, I did. And it wasn't until after she died that I realized that um, my grams wasn't just like that to me because I was her granddaughter. That's just who she was. At her funeral, when we were finished that day, person after person just started coming up to me to tell me these stories about how they couldn't pay for college one semester and Grams made up the difference, and how they remembered this time that they were going through something really difficult and she took them out for a meal, how she would send letters and remember birthdays and offer a place to stay when that was needed. Grams was someone whose treasure was in heaven. And not because she was waiting for some kind of reward when she died. Graham's treasure was in heaven because Graham's loved the things that God loves. Graham's treasured the things that Jesus treasured. And living that way filled her life with light. She saw the beauty and goodness in the world around her. And she looked for opportunities to extend herself generously in love. And in doing so, the kingdom of heaven was at hand when you were around her. When Jesus tells us to store up treasure in heaven, he's inviting us to find a new kind of kingdom than the kingdom of this world. In the vocabulary of Jesus, when he talks about the kingdom of heaven, it's a place where truth abounds, where justice flows to everyone, right? Where beauty can be seen and where every need is met and met abundantly. The scriptures tell us that the kingdom of heaven is righteousness and peace and joy. And when Jesus tells us that we ought to store up our treasure here, what he means is that those things ought to be our ideals, the things that we're living into, the way that we're channeling the energy of our life. Now, it's not hard to see that those are not the ideals of the kingdom of this world, right? There's so many things that the world asks us to treasure. The world says you should treasure your body, 
above all else, and you should uh, work out, and you should buy certain kinds of clothes, prioritize your health, accentuate your body, take this pill, do this fitness regime, and you'll live longer and feel better. The kingdom of this world says your home is your treasure, right? You have to live in a certain neighborhood, decorate with a particular style, and build wealth through uh, real estate. The world says money is your treasure. Start a 401k, keep a stock portfolio, invest wisely, keep your eyes on the numbers, and on and on and on it goes. Like There's a hundred different ideals. We could fill in the blank there. But what Jesus is getting at here is that if you try it, and we all try it, that if you attempt to store up the treasure of your life in any of these lesser things, if you try to channel your energy and longings into the kingdom of this world, it will ruin you. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Okay? If you make your body your treasure, you will be a slave to it. You will spend your time and affection and your energy trying to do all the things you think you need to do to make your body the way you think it needs to be. If you make money your treasure, you will serve it, and money is a terrible master. Your greed will never be satisfied. Even good things like family and relationships, if we set our hearts on them as our ultimate treasure, they will rule over us and ultimately disappoint us. And besides that, Jesus tells us that all these other treasures are passing away. They're things that can be destroyed by moths and rust and time. But Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven, it never ends, that it endures all throughout scripture, we see the truth about the human heart is that it is bent to worship something, right? I mean, that's why the very first commandment in the Ten Commandments is you shall have no other God before me. And just in case you didn't quite get it, the second one is don't make for yourself an idol. And what God's trying to tell his people is that you're going to want to worship something. And if you pick anything besides me, it's going to ruin you we begin to become like the thing that we worship. It changes us. When we orient our hearts towards something, we become like that thing. Jesus says it this way, you're going to serve one master. And when we become people who treasure Jesus, who treasure his kingdom, we have a gentle master. One who would give himself over to death so that we won't miss his kingdom of heaven. So it falls then to us to order our lives around Jesus and to set our hearts on the things that God loves. And you might be saying, Lindsay, that, uh, okay, you've made some compelling arguments. I can see some of that, and that definitely comes out of the text. But how do I do that? What does that look like? How do we become people who treasure the kingdom of heaven instead of the kingdoms of this world? Well, Jesus has an answer for that too, and it also comes right out of the text. In Matthew 6, he tells us that we have to stop worrying and seek the kingdom. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life. What will you eat and what will you drink? Or about your body, what will you wear? Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his life by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? 
Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. And yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough troubles of its own. Don't worry. But easier said than done. Because I think right now, if we paused and turned to our neighbor and said, what are you worried about? It would not take us very long to fill in that sentence. And I wonder, why does Jesus tell us uh, not to worry immediately after he tells us about the dangers of staking our lives on the wrong thing, about treasuring the wrong thing? And I think it's because we store up treasure here in the kingdoms of this world because we're worried, because we're anxious about a future that we can't control. We save and we spend and we hoard and we build our little kingdoms because we're afraid of what will come. We can't control it. And it scares us. So we do whatever we can to control what we can. And Jesus tries to set us right here by reminding us, you are not in control. And that sounds like bad news. And in some ways, maybe it is. But in other ways, it's really good news. Because the God who is in control is a good, good father who cares about every part of his creation he cares for the whole universe, even the flowers, even the birds. And how much more will he care for you? You know, I went kicking and screaming into those dorms in Boulder. But those orange doors and concrete walls were God's provision for us. I didn't get to choose the things that I thought I would in that season. And a lot of us don't. But I can see now, looking back, that there were really good gifts in that season and I can also see the ways in which God was helping break something in me that desired an HGTV version of life and shaping me instead into someone who lives life with a, I wonder what God has for us next, kind of an attitude. The kingdom of heaven is not in your scheming and your striving and your planning and your trying. The kingdom of heaven is here. It's today. And it's everlasting. It's the truth that God is with us. It's the promise that you'll always be loved, that you'll always be cared for. It's goodness and beauty and joy in the world. It's the chance for you to enact justice and offer mercy and extend yourself generously in love. Why birds and flowers? Why talk about food and clothes here? Most of us, probably if I asked you what you're worried about, that might not be at the top of our list. But I think, number one, he mentions those things because they are things we all need, and perhaps we do worry about those from time to time. But the other thing Jesus is doing is something his listeners would have been familiar with in the way that people talked and made arguments back then. This is called an a fortiori argument, or an argument based on a stronger argument. If God can do X then whatever Y is won't be too hard for God. It's like those commercials when they're trying to sell you a new product, right? Tide Pods. And the, 
hopeless dad is standing there and he can't figure out how to do the laundry and then woo, he tries a Tide Pod and everything's clean, right? And what you, the viewer, are meant to take away from, if this hopeless dad can solve his laundry problems with Tide, how much more a Tide Pod's gonna work for you, competent people who already know how to do laundry, right? That's kind of the whole, the whole point of the commercial. And Jesus, in this passage, is trying to help us see that, that if God can take care of the little things, if God cares for the flowers, if your basic needs are provided for, that whatever else is in your heart, whatever worries have you in their grip, whatever it is that's keeping you up at night, you need to know how much more is God's love for you. His love is stronger than those things. His ability to provide is infinite. He holds the whole world in his hand. And whatever plans it is that you're desperate to enact on your behalf, God's plans are better. And the invitation to us then is that we can rest from our worries in that love. I'd like to close with three things. The first is this. I want to invite you to take some time later this week with this passage. Uh, in preparation for my sermon, I'd been reading this passage every day for a number of weeks. But honestly, uh, I struggled with what to say to you today. Uh, a lot of times when I'm preparing to give a message, there's some obvious complexity. If I'm talking about the Hebrew uh, midwives in Exodus, well, we kind of need a little bit of context and background. So I know exactly what to start looking for to help us make sense of it. But as I kept reading this passage over and over, I was like, well, good sermon, Jesus. <laughs> Not sure what else there is for me to add to that. And so feeling a little unsure about what I should do, on Wednesday night, I brought the text to my small group and asked if they could be my sermon planning brain trust and we could read it and talk about it together. And so they graciously obliged me. And as we read it and began to talk, that discussion was so rich about the worry spirals in our lives and the ways in which we combat fear and worry about our longings, the practices that we've come to use in our own life. And honestly, the way that the words in this passage have been both a wound and a balm in times of anxiety. One woman shared about a physics class that she took at UC Davis. And the professor, she said, was so smart and she loved listening to him but she only ever felt like she understood a little bit about what he was saying because it was just a little bit over her head. And in fact, she never got higher than a 40% on any of the tests, and yet somehow in the way that he curved it, she passed the class. And after she told us that anecdote, she said she thinks Jesus is a little bit like that professor, right? You read the sermon and you think that he's so wise and that everything makes sense and you think you understand it, and then you go and you try to live this out, and you only ever get to about 40%. And yet somehow, in the grace and mystery of the resurrection, Jesus makes that 40% enough. But still, I think there's more for us to learn. So I encourage you to go back and spend some time this week just sitting with these words. And as you read them, I want to invite you to pray your worries and longings. We're in the midst of our fall challenge on prayer. And I wonder what it would look like to become a community of people who are significantly unburdened from their worries in prayer. I think that kind of community is possible, but I think it starts with naming our worries before God. Someone, I'm, I don't quite know who to attribute it to, but I read 
uh, in a book about prayer one time, there, there's an instruction that Paul gives in the New Testament that we should pray without ceasing all the time. That sounds really hard. But some of us know that it's kind of easy to worry without ceasing, right? That we have that script that's constantly running in our head. And I wonder if we could take that script, that worry that we always have going, and let it become prayer. Tell God your longings, the things that are in your heart, the places where you find yourself holding on because you're afraid of what's to come, and invite him to orient you again to his kingdom. The last thing I want to do today is to practice being present. I would like to lead us uh, for a few minutes in what's called a breath prayer. A breath prayer is pretty new to me just in the last year or so, but it's such a great way of entering into the moment with God. Breathing keeps us present to what's happening right now, right? We're not thinking about the past and our failures there or the future, which Jesus tells us has enough troubles of its own. So in a moment, we're going to pray a breath prayer from Matthew 6. I'll give you instructions about what to do, and then we're going to pray it through together three times. When we're finished, we'll just sit in the silence for a minute or two, allow you to notice what you experience or what you're feeling after that. And then I'll have some questions on the screen, which I'll invite you to discuss with somebody who's sitting nearby. So if you're willing, we'll begin by putting your feet sort of squarely on the floor, sitting up in your chair and allowing your spine to straighten up as you're able. And we'll just start by breathing. We're going to breathe in slowly, hold your breath for just a moment, and then breathe out slowly. Breathing in and then breathing out. As we begin to pray, we're going to say the words on the screen. We'll say, look at the birds as we inhale. They do not worry on the exhale. And then look at the flowers as you breathe in. And then you love me more as we breathe out. Inhale. Look at the birds. They do not worry. Look at the flowers. You love me more. If you're comfortable, say it with me. Look at the birds. They do not worry. Look at the flowers. You love me more. Look at the birds. They do not worry. Look at the flowers. You love me more. Just pause here in the quiet.
when you're ready, there's some discussion questions on the screen. So take this time to turn and talk to a neighbor about how you're responding today.